In John 4, reading from verse 21 to 26, Jesus met this woman at the well. And Jesus, she asked him a few questions. And we'll jump in in 21 where Jesus said unto her, Woman, believe me, the hour cometh when neither in this mountain nor in Jerusalem worship the Father. You worship you know not what. We know what we worship, for salvation is of the Jews. But the hour cometh and now is when true worshipers shall worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For the Father seeketh such to worship him. God is a spirit, and they that worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. The woman saith unto him, I know that Messiah cometh, which is called Christ, and when he is come, he will tell us all things. Jesus said unto her, I that speak unto thee am he. How do you think she felt? This was in their, in their mind that sometime Messiah would come. What was it like when he looked at her and he said, here I am. An awesome moment. Yesterday, we celebrated Christmas, along with about 45% of the world. And I don't know what Christmas means to you, and I'm sure that for all of us, Christmas holds memories. Some pleasant, and some not so pleasant. Sometimes at Christmas, we're reminded of partings, and we were. For some people, it's pain. Their families are a mess. And when you're supposed to come together, come home for Christmas, home is not pleasant. And I realize that maybe some of us. My memories of Christmas are pleasant. And I would suppose most of us are that way. So regardless of whether your memories or your emotions about Christmas are pleasant or sad. My prayer is that this morning, as we journey through the passage of Scripture here in John 1, that the meaning of Christmas could be renewed in our hearts. And so I want to take a look at what this really is. It's interesting here because in two of of the Gospels, the birth of Jesus, his physical birth is recorded. John does not record his physical birth. But he does record that he came. But he is the one that begins with Jesus' eternal existence, which is an important thing. And so this morning, as I look at the subject of the Word becoming flesh, I want us to think about his eternal existence, the fact that he was always was, and who he is. And this scripture very aptly puts that at what what it says. So first, I want to take a look at the theology of the Word becoming flesh, as presented in this text passage of John 1. And secondly, I want to take a look at the reasons that the Word became flesh. And then lastly, what is the impact that the Christmas event has on the believer? Now, like I said, we study, we celebrate Christmas, but what is its impact? So if we go back to John and we look at verse 1 and 2, it talks about the beginning. He goes back to the beginning, and he says that the beginning was word, or the Greek word logos, and here logos was there. And what is logos? Well, 
which can be as simple as men speaking. But typically when the Bible uses the word locust, it means a living power, something that is powerful like with his word. And you remember the scripture in Genesis 1 that God spoke the world into existence. And I, I don't have power in my brain to compute that one. I have to leave it uncomputed. That's all. And I just don't have the computing power for it. But it says he spoke the world into existence. And that is the logos that we understand here. In the creation it says, and God said, and it was. Now it is rightly said that logos is God active in creation, in revelation, and redemption. And I want to take a look at some of those this morning. So in verse 1 and 2, it talks about the word was with God and the word was God. So it's establishing very clearly that the word, the logos, is God. And the same was in the beginning with God. And then in verse 14, it comes with this profound declaration that the word was made flesh. That means that the logos, that God who created the world, was made a man. And I can't compute that either. It's an awe moment, but that's what it was. It says, and the same was in the beginning. Verse 3, let's establish a few things here. It says that all things were made by him, and without him was not anything made that was made. And I, I like Young's literal here. Young's literal says, all things through him did happen, and without him happened not one thing that happened. That puts his providence in. Now, is that still in existence, or did that only happen in creation, we may ask? Well, it actually is still there. I like to think of God as the God of providence that puts everything in motion from the beginning. His creation laws exist, but his providence, or his everything existing by him, is still in place. Now, we can comprehend that to some point. Now, really, we can't, but we can at least the concept. But when that concept that did it and that made the world walks around the earth in a human body, our breakers all flip to our, our power panels. And we're done. And we, can't, we don't know what to do with that because it's too much for us. It's a God-man combo that we cannot quite comprehend. And Corinthians 1, it says the same thing. For by him were all things created that are in heaven and that are in earth, visible and invisible, whether they be thrones or dominions or principalities or powers. All things were created by him and for him, and he is before all things, and by him all things consist. That's a powerful scripture. And this man, this God, that had everything, the creator, it says very plainly that this creator became a man. That's Christmas. And I'm not sure that we can quite comprehend why I told you we can't comprehend it. But I'm not sure that we even know how to process it. Let's look at a few other things here. As we look at the theology of the word becoming flesh. In verse 4, it talks about life, or zoe in Greek. It says that life was made the light of men. And we'll talk about life and light a bit later. But verse 14, I want to go back where it talks about that light. It uses the term only begotten. Now, that's a Greek word, which is uh, monogamous. Mono uh, mono uh, actually, it's so hard to pronounce, so I'm not going to try it anymore. 
but it's monogenes, basically, is what it is. Now, you can understand that as you split it. That's not how it's pronounced. But mono is one, and genes is a genetic. So what it's saying, that he is the only genetic of God. Come to earth. Now, let that sit, settle in just a little bit. The only genetic, the monogenus of God. And so, when you think about that, let's, there's some more scriptures that said that. It says in, in Colossians 2, 9, For in him dwelleth all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. Now, let's let those scriptures sink in a little bit on what happened on Christmas Day. And the fullness of the Godhead bodily was a little baby that had subjected that was subjected to all of human fallenness outwardly. Tiredness, he got uh, hungry, and things hurt. And ultimately, he subjected himself to death. And yet, in John 8, Jesus said, Verily, verily, I say unto you, before Abraham was, I am. There's some powerful things that he says. And in verse 15 in our text, John, the prophet John, said that he, even though Jesus was younger than him, he said, he came before me. So John himself recognized that Jesus always existed. It's an amazing thing. Now, if you would have made the world, if you would have been the creator and you decided that you would join what you made and become what you made. I, I can't quite process that. But if you would do it, how would you do it? Especially when you made it perfect at Eden. And then these people that you made destroyed your perfection. How would you come? Would you come in perfection or in fallenness? It would seem to me that it would feel good to come down to these people who messed my perfection and to show them what it would look like if they would have stayed in Eden. Just put it in front of them. Show them what it looks like if you don't need to sweat, if you don't need to get tired or hungry. Wouldn't have that been great? That way they could have had a picture of what their fallenness produced. But instead he came and he, enjoy, he, he joined them in their fallen universe. And he subjected himself to it. Now he was perfect as a, as a God inside. He was sinless. But his body was subjected to everything that was in creation. Now I want to take you back on just a little bit of another thing. Just sort of a free sideshow here maybe. And that is the whole thing of how things were made in the beginning. There's this thing called synesthetic. That's a big word. And the other, the other day we were talking about it. And my nephew put it perfectly in simple English words. And until this morning he forgot what he said. And so I said, yes, we'll have to stick with the big word. Uh, but what it really means is that there's a wholeness and a completion in everything. And so there's some people whose brains, about 4% of the world has synesthetic brains. 
And so when they see numbers, they see colors. Or when they see a person, there's a number and maybe even a color and a character. Immediately all runs together. What it, in short, what it does is that, is that uh, you have a, a, com- a compilation of, of people, events, numbers, words, and colors, and music all flow together. And there's some musicians that have brains like this. And as music is sung and played, they see a light show in their brain because every note has a certain level of light. And, and, and so what it does is one sense gets the other one. Do you think Adam had a brain like that? I think perhaps, because you think about these animals coming in front of him, and he just named them all, like it was nothing to it. Every time he saw one, it was like, well, that, that, that's the word that matches. And there's something that happens to those things that's amazing. So I want you to think about Jesus, who was creator, Jesus who made it perfectly, and then people destroyed it, that perfection. Now he comes to earth, and he sees the whole picture. He sees how everything comes together, and very likely had such a brain. If that's how it is a creation, and some people think that all babies are born like that, but they don't use it, and so we lose it. Interesting. The connectors are there, but we just don't keep the connectors up. So... If that's true, then Jesus had such a brain. It is also safe to assume that in Eden had far greater sensory capabilities than post-Eden did. I think we can agree with that. So Jesus comes as a God-man, and I think he had Eden sensory in his brain, his observations. Plus, he was God and knew all things. Can you imagine now walking through this earth with that kind of knowledge and seeing fallenness all around you, and ministering hard work to that fallenness. When he had it all, he could have just fixed it with a spoken word. Instead, he joined them in the pathway, and he walked with them. What does that mean? I want to tell you just a little bit about this whole thing of synesthetic. And you can follow this, Creation Week. See, the Bible has numbers, the Bible has colors, the Bible has people, the Bible has names. And all these things mean something. So it's, it's interesting how numbers mean something. So it's very obvious that even in creation, numbers had great meanings. Then you have this correlation, like Creation Week. It starts off like that. In Creation Week, in day one, he created light. Day two, he created sea and sky. And in day three, he created dry land. And it was just... Sitting there, nothing happening. And then he did day 1B and 2B and 3B. It all correlated. So day 1, he made this light. And day 4, he put lights, sun, moon, and stars, actors, in the light. And in day 2, he made sea and sky. And on day 5, he made fish and birds. He put actors in the fish and birds. And on day 6, he put actors on the dry land animals and humans. And so you follow, it's 1, 2, 3, 1A, 2A, and 3A, and then it's 1B, 2B, and 3B. And it's, is that meaning? Is there synchronization there? Of course. And then, day seven, it has no pair. It's an exclamation mark. The Jewish people say, to miss that day is to miss the best day. And I agree with them. You think about that. 
And so right there, just in creation week, there's a whole bunch of things that are said by how it was done and what the numbers looked like. Interesting, isn't it? Well, so we asked the question, then why did he do this? You can ask people, why did Jesus come to earth? Probably one of the first answers that we get is to forgive us our sins. I have often wondered about that. Maybe I'm a heretic to you, but is that really why he came? When they asked Jesus what he's doing here, he always said to fulfill the will of the Father. Always. I have come to fulfill his will. And he said, and to finish it, and he used the word, Greek word, teleo, and it's the same word that was his last word on the cross. When he yelled out, it is finished, was the word teleo. And he said, I have come to finish it. It means to pay it and to do the whole thing. When the entire thing is done, it's stamped, approved, finished, paid. He said, that's what I have come. I have come to do the will of the Father and to finish it. So I think there was something higher than forgiveness. Now, he did come to forgive us, to be sure. But there was something deeper and higher than forgiveness. It was to do the will of the Father. Now, I want us to think about that. I think we can all agree that in Eden, when man was put in Eden, he was put there to do exactly that, right? To do the will of the Father. And then they didn't. How do you fix that? This is how you fix it. So he came and became created. The creator became created to enter into something that's called restoration, redemption, to redeem us. Romans 8 and 1 Corinthians 15 talks about someday when he will redeem creation itself, our bodies. The first time he came to redeem us inside and to plant his kingdom here in a spiritual way, beyond the spiritual way, a very practical way. But Romans 8, 1 Corinthians 15 talks about sometime when he will come again and redemption will be completed. So we can conclude, and I think you agree, that we are only in part of the full redemption process, not quite done. So what does redemption and restoration look like? Now, I have always wanted, not always, for some years, I should say, a 1963 Ford truck. And why 1963? That's because that's the year I was born. Now, now you know my age. But that's the year I was born. And, and why would I want a restored 1963 truck? You think about it. Why not? You know, why would I want it restored? Why would I want it that way? Well, the answer is so it works, right? So I can tool around with it and enjoy it. But if you would take an old junky truck and it's not running, and then you would enter into that truck's life, as it were, and you would start restoring it. What restoration looks like is you start removing parts that are not usable, replacing it with usable parts. You start taking off rust. You start taking off bad things. And you put things back together so it's in working order. Now, my goal would not be to purchase that truck. That's not my ultimate goal. My ultimate goal would not to be forgive that, forgive that truck of its sins or its rust. My ultimate goal would to have that truck restored. So forgiveness is a pathway too. Yes, he came to forgive us, but for a cause. Because in order to restore us, he had to forgive us. That's not the ultimate. Restoration becomes closer to the ultimate, but not yet the ultimate. 
Because once that truck's restored, I wouldn't just park it. I would want to use it sometimes. You understand? But restoration is hard work. When Jesus came to earth, he found something out about restoration. Not that he didn't know it, but he showed us how it looked like. When you enter into restoration, you get some on you. Maybe that's why we're so slow at entering in. When you enter into messy situations, some of that mess gets splattered on you. It's not easy, and it wasn't for God either. It was difficult. He was accused. He got splattered and all those things throughout the way, but he persisted in restoration. <clears throat> we read the scripture. We, I mean, we, read the, we sing the song, it is finished, the battle is over. I love the song. I'm not sure that I think it's quite theologically correct, but a lot of songs aren't. Musicians aren't necessarily theologians. Sorry for you that are musicians. But uh, it, it sings nice, and there's one sense where it's right because the battle is over with God, he sealed it. He fought the battle. But whenever I sing it, I'm like, why am I still fighting if this thing's over? How's come? Haven't I entered in? Or what's wrong? Quite truth be told, we're still in the battle. It's not quite over for us. Now, victory is assured. But we are still on a pathway of redemption. Now, let's not get too mixed up. But I'm this morning for the sake of making it flow, going to put justification and restoration under one word called redemption. There's a difference between being justified and being, I mean, between uh, uh, redeemed at the altar where your sins are forgiven, and there's a difference between being, being uh, sanctified, justification, sanctification, excuse me, those two. I think they all fit under the term redemption because it's an ongoing thing. And let me explain the, the, the Hebrew view of redemption. In the Hebrew view, now Hebrew is a colorful language, and there again we go back to this synesthetic deal. When the Hebrews use language, they see pictures. So when there's a story, when they think about the story, a pathway of redemption, when you use redemption in Hebrew, there's a picture drawn of a pathway where people are walking on it, going from one place to the other. That's what, that's what, the pathway of righteousness looks like to them. That's the picture of righteousness. Walking in righteousness. You hear that in the Bible. Walk in Him. It's a pathway towards. That is what, that is what uh, uh, salvation looks like to them. Now, there's another few interesting things that come in here. And that's the whole idea of grace and repentance. The term righteousness is a pathway. Not so much the pieties of righteousness, but the journey of righteousness. I think you get that difference. The journey of righteousness, walking in him. Two other words, when the Hebrews term grace, they think of an encampment of tents. Now, it was in their history, wasn't it? When they were 40 years in the wilderness, they had an encampment of tents. And in that encampment, God came down and gave them grace. That's their picture of grace. 
You received God's goodness. You received God's power. You received all of God's loving kindness, food, and all your care within the encampment. That's what grace does for us. But if you leave the encampment, you don't get water, you don't get food, and you don't get protection. So grace was the encampment of the group following God on a pathway of righteousness. It's a lot to be said for that. Repentance was when I left the pathway and I was out there and all of a sudden I realized that I'm on the wrong pathway. Like if you're traveling and all of a sudden you realize that I am on the wrong pathway and then you turn your vehicle around and you go back to the road you left. If you were an hour out, it's an hour back unless you have a shortcut road. But in the Hebrew view, repentance was the entire pathway back. And that's why we have some problems with repentance today. We think it's a confession only. Confession, repentance is a pathway back to where I belong. And the whole thing is repentance. That doesn't mean you're not forgiven when you turn around. It just means I'm still on the pathway back. Now this is pictorial Old Testament words that are in our Bible. And we do well to take heed to them. So I want us to think about that. Now, as we go further, and we talk about a few of these whys, what does it mean? In 2 Corinthians 5.18, it says, And all things are of God, who hath reconciled us to himself by Jesus Christ, and given to us the ministry of reconciliation. To wit, that God was in Christ, reconciling the world unto himself, not imputing their trespasses unto them, and hath committed unto us the word of reconciliation. Now we're entering in. How do we enter in? Becomes. And it's interesting, when Jesus left, and he told his disciples to wait, he said, my spirit will come down on you, and then I will put myself on you, and you will become my tools. That is the ultimate purpose that Jesus came. So that his spirit could rest upon us and there would be many hands and feet of Jesus ministering the ministry of reconciliation to the world. But the only way he can have you be a part of that ministry of reconciliation is if we have forgiveness, we have redemption, and we become cleaned up, restored tools. And we're not quite there yet. We're usable we still have more places to work in. And we all understand that. So that is what he is doing for us. So in short, it is more than forgiveness. Now, let's think about the gospel a little bit as we think about the reconciliation. The gospel is Jesus is God. He died for our sins. And he rose again to give life. And what he did when he rose, he put life in dead places. And that is what the ministry of reconciliation does. It goes right back with the Hebrew word shalom, which is translated peace, which peace doesn't really do much justice to the word shalom. It's much bigger than that. It's an active, progressive peace that doesn't just sit there. Let's think about forgiveness and confession just a bit. Confession actually has more to do with our future than our past. Sometimes we just think of taking care of our past, and it is that. But think about it. When Jesus dealt with confessions, he talked about their future. The reason we confess is because of our future. That's the ultimate reason. 
We have to clean up the past because of our future. And we have to think forward, not just backwards. In John 4, the scripture I read, when Jesus came to that woman, the most important thing he did was prepare her for her future. He offered her living water, and in verse 14, in John 4, he offered her living water, and it uses the word springing up within you. That word is only used two other times in the Bible. And in both places, it's when, a, it's when a lame man began to walk, and it says he was leaping. So when the word of God comes in us, and it springs out, it absolutely bubbles over, and it explodes from our being, and it splashes on others. That's the springing up within us. That is the ultimate that he wants. I find it interesting the John 4 woman, history has it that she became a faithful woman in the church. Oaxaco, Oaxaca, I don't know if I can say it right, Mexico, still celebrates that woman every year at Lent. The fourth day of Lent, fourth Friday of Lent, they have a custom where they put Businesses and people give juices and, and water to people in honor of this woman and the living water. Early church historians tell us that she gave her life for her faith. See, Jesus dealt with her future. He wanted her to become one of his tools. Jesus also met with Zacchaeus, a publican, a cheater, a schemer. When Zacchaeus confessed, Jesus dealt with his future. He prepared him for the future. And the early church historians tell us that Zacchaeus became a bishop in the Christian church and also gave his life for the Lord. In John 21, when Peter was restored, Jesus did not only deal with his past, he spoke about his future. And we need to think about that. That's why there's forgiveness. I asked the question, when Jesus came, do you think he had appointments? We have appointments, be certain places at certain times. Do you think Jesus had appointments? He did. And in John 4, it tells us very plainly that he had an appointment in Samaria. He said, I must needs go. There was an appointment with this woman at Samaria. And as he went through life, he had appointments. He had an appointment with Zacchaeus. He had an appointment with events and people and places. Appointments that he was, came here to meet. And in John 4, he had an appointment with a place that had upheavals happening in it for over 1,600 years. And when the Messiah walked in there, he fixed the upheaval. And we never read about the place again. It was again the exclamation mark at Shechem. The last mention of Shechem in Scripture was when the Messiah went to Shechem and he answered the questions of Shechem. He had an appointment. So if he calls us into the ministry of reconciliation, I ask the question, do you have appointments? Could it be? 
Or was it only Esther who was born for such a time as this? Sometimes we think of bulletin board appointments, big ones. You know, most of the appointments we have in life never make the bulletin board. They never make prayer meeting. Nobody prays for us about it. They're just regular, normal appointments. We had a woman in our church that was a behind-the-scenes woman. She was constantly serving people. We never prayed for Barb's ministry in our church at prayer meeting. I don't think we ever prayed for her ministry. She had a tremendous ministry in our church until she got cancer. And we started praying for Barb at prayer meeting. Now, if she would have gone to another place, we would have prayed for her, put a little card on the bulletin board and prayed for her. Right? Did you know that most of the things in the church are done like Barb? They never make prayer meeting. The events don't. That's where most of it happens. And I want us to think about joining into that ministry. But what does it look like? There's three things that are Holy Spirit-centered that need to be Holy Spirit-centered in our lives. Firstly, is the centrality of Jesus Christ to our faith. That is very important. He is central in our faith. And secondly, the community is the center of our life. God has made it so that Christians walk together in, in community. Always done that. It's that community that's powerful. It's that community together that performs a very powerful and a strong witness. And thirdly, is the work of reconciliation. It's hard for churches to balance those three. It seems we're good at two or one, but it's hard to be good at three. But we need to strive for that. If you have, if you have Jesus at the center of your faith and your community is strong and you don't engage in much work of reconciliation, you're a monument, a museum that people look at and say, well, I wish that's pretty nice the way those people live. But if you get into work of reconciliation, it's a little different. Then we know some people that are really good at reconciliation, but it seems they're poor with community, maybe even in the centrality of Jesus. But let's think about it. This is something we need to think about having the whole thing. But really, reconciliation is the ultimate end of our work. That's what he wants us to, to do. What does it look like when we enter into reconciliation? I'm going to look at a few things here. Now, reconciliation is stressful. And I think of a person like Dirk Willems, and he is the picture that we see in our minds when we think of love in action. Dirk Willems was under extreme pressure. He was running for his life when his captor broke through the ice, and he turned around rather than escaping and saved his captor. And for that act, in spite of that act, he was burned at the stake. And we say extreme love. Now, sometimes we say, I'm sorry I acted the way I was. It's not really me. I was under pressure. Really? When I buy a car, one of the first things I do is put it under pressure to see what it really is. Step on the brakes real hard. See if they shimmy. I stomp on it to see if it stutters. Then we know what it really is. But as soon as it's me, we're like, no, no, no. You stepped on the brakes too hard. My brakes are really smooth if, if you know. It's not really me to have shimmying brakes. You just put me under pressure. Dirk Willems was under intense pressure. And he acted out of who he was. 
I want you to think about that. Reconciliation. Aaron Remfo in 1917 lived in Nodenfeld, Ukraine. The Red Army was coming in. They were their enemies. And he knew that if the Red Army advances in Ukraine, he was a prisoner. The Ukrainian army was winning that time. And one night on the way home from the grocery store, there was a train carload of Russian Red, Red Army soldiers, Soviet soldiers. And as he passed by, one of them called out and said, We're hungry. What would you do? This is the enemy. And Aaron Remfo, against everything that a person would want to do, went up and put his meats and his cheeses and his groceries through the slats of that train car, and he fed those men. A short weeks later, they came back. That army came back and rounded him up and banished him to Siberia. Aaron Remfo acted out of who he was. That's reconciliation. I think of several others. We could tell of a lot. We could talk about the nickel mine school shooting. People who turned around and acted out of who they were. There's many, many other people who donated themselves to the cause and gave themselves to work and gave themselves completely to it. We look at those people and say, well, they had appointments. Dirk Willems had an appointment. We look at these people like Aaron Remfel and said, well, he was for such a time as this. But do you have an appointment? Not all our appointments are pleasant. I want to circle back to our text. Verse 14, there's a few words that jump out at us. It gives us a new word. And the word was made flesh and dwelt amongst us, and we beheld his glory. Now, the word glory in Greek is doxa. And the word, word, word is logos. You put those two together, and you have the word doxology, which means the glory of the living word. Now, the doxology is praise God from whom all blessings flow. Praise him, all creatures here below. Praise him above, you heavenly hosts. Praise Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. Amen. The glory of the living word. So what is doxology? Are we doxologies? Are we saints? Does the living word dwell in us? Does it spring out from us like overflowing? Is that a doxology? What is doxology? It is true that our evangelism is never, never more powerful than our doxology. Evangelism is basically bringing the story of God and His Son Jesus to people. And in, in the gospel... The ultimate event of the gospel was the resurrection when he puts life in dead places. And that is what reconciliation is about. It's what restoration is about. It's why Jesus came to earth. He came to put life in dead places. He saw where, where humans defiled per perfection and he came back to fix it, to put life where there's death. 
And he did a grand display of putting life back into death when he rose. And we've seen it. And he wants that to be continued, putting life into dead places. And it is our ministry. And it goes back to the Hebrew word shalom. Shalom is not just making peace, but it's actually taking messy places and putting them back where they belong. We don't think of that as peace. We think of peace as the perfect weather, the perfect everything. But Shalom doesn't see it that way. Shalom says, I'm taking messiness and restoring it back to where it belongs. And we just call that peace. And it really is. So as we look at this scripture, what do we learn? In verse 1, we learn that Jesus was God. An awesome thing to think about. In verse 3, we learn that he made all things. He was the creator. And in verse 14, we learn that the creator became the created. Verse 12, we learn that he reconciles fallen people back to himself. And it says that to as many as received him, to them gave he power to become the sons of God. He gave them that life springing up within him. Fifthly, the creator lives within redeemed people to enable them to engage in the ministry of reconciliation. Verse 12, verse 16. I want to give an illustration on this. There's a man in our area was walking through the mall. And there was this woman there with two sons, and they were fighting. And they became louder and louder. And finally, the people in the mall were looking around at these two boys that were yelling at each other and fighting, coming close to fists. What would you do? Well, we can walk along with our perfect children and our perfect wife and show them what Christian home looks like. Then they can see the, 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 the difference between one that is not Christian and one is Christian. I can pat myself on the back and say I was a good witness. We weren't fighting like that. We were walking in harmony, and my children were just about whistling gospel songs as we went through the, the mall. We were so good. And we gave such a great witness. Is that our witness? Or do you get some on you? Well, Matt quit. He just stopped. An old camp chief, of course. The chief came out in him. And he went over there and he says, wait a minute, wait a minute. And he started talking to them. He started asking them. And of course, they started talking over each other. And he said, one at a time. And the one boy gave all his grievances. And the other boy gave all his grievances. Mama was standing off to the side just watching what was happening. You know, this man just interfered in her life. Just stopped in and was the problem solver. And before he was done, he had them hugging each other and apologizing to each other. And the mother thanking him over and over again for helping out. That's shalom. That is what shalom looks like. Lived. Now you and your family walking through the mall in perfection might look nice, but that's not shalom. You follow me? The creator lives within redeemed people to enable us to engage in the ministry of reconciliation. In verse 16, And of his fullness have we all received, and grace for grace. Fullness? For us? His? Fullness? For us? Sometimes we think we just get bits, but it says it's all of it. 
In Ephesians 3, it says, Now unto him that is able to exceedingly abundantly above all that we ask or think, according to the power which worketh in Jesus. Now in us. Think about that. So let's look at, it. Let's look at just a few things. Life. Verse 4 talks about life. In him was life. And then it says that the life became light. See, light starts lighting up dark places. That's what light does. And we have that in Matthew 4, where it says, Ye are the light of the world. A city that is set on a hill cannot be hid. That is actually our calling. And in verse 16, it says, Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father which is in heaven. Our ministry of reconciliation, our good works, should bring glory to God. Just like if I would restore that truck, they wouldn't glorify the truck. They'd glorify the person that restored it. That's how we do with God. We are his tools, but the glory is his. We come up with a mathematical equation. This is the equation. Life equals light. And light equals glory. Because it makes life visible. And that glory goes to God. That is doxology. The glory of the living word is revealed to the world through people in whom God dwells. Let's go back to my opening scripture, John 4. But whosoever drinketh of the water that I shall give him shall never thirst. But the water that I shall give him shall be in him a well of water springing up into everlasting life. Springing, leaping out of you. The reason for Christmas is none other than doxology. Let's kneel for prayer.